to a different color by Ralph Moody, University of Nebraska Press, 1968, chapter 19. Both pockets full of fish. I give you thanks, God, as we uh, are almost ready to celebrate Christmas that you brought kids in safely and grandkids in safely. I thank you that we uh, can gather and encourage one another and um, anticipate the celebration. Thank you for John the Baptist and the way he prepared the way of the uh, Lord and, and all the work that was done uh, in the, the preparation. And I pray now as we read this that it would be a joy to read this chapter. In Jesus' name, amen. I stopped at the restaurant only long enough to leave the plate and tell Spyro I wouldn't know how how the contract I wouldn't know about the contract till afternoon. It was barely 9.30 when I reached the stockyards, but my hogs had already been sold, and Matt called out, We sure guessed right in holding them back to the last auction. They were the only prime bacon hogs to come in, and every buyer in town was red hot for them. Both cars brought $8.85. How'd you make out with Emmett? I'd hoped to get as much as $7.85 a hundredweight for my hogs, but $8.85 was almost unbelievable. For a moment, I was so amazed that I didn't comprehend what he meant by asking how I'd made out with Emmett. Then I remembered seeing the name Emmett F. Donovan on the office door. I won't know till noon, I said, but I have a hunch that I'm going to get that contract if there's any way he can push it through. You couldn't have a better man pushing for you, he said. Come on inside and let's settle up on those hogs. The figuring didn't take long and left no doubt about the value of keeping hogs wet during shipment in hot weather. My shrinkage had been very slight, and the net proceeds were nearly $4,000, 500 more than I'd even hoped for. I stood bemused by my good fortune until Matt asked, Want to check now, or shall I mail it to the Farmers National at Oberlin? With the tide of luck running my way as strongly as it had for the past few days, I felt so confident of getting the meat contract that I told him, Mail a check for 2000 to the bank for my account and give me one made out to the CB&Q for 1000 and I'd like the balance in cash. Ordinarily, if I'd had no hard work to do and was obliged to wait two or three hours for a decision as important to me as that meat contract, my nerves would have been tighter than fiddle strings. But that forenoon, I was completely relaxed. Until 11.30, I loafed around the stockyards, visiting with other stockmen, then timed myself to reach Mr. Donovan's office for a few minutes before 12 o'clock. The moment I opened his door, I knew the contract was mine. There was a twinkle in the big Irishman's eyes and a broad, contagious smile on his face. Well, lad, he told me, it's here. But I had to burn up half the wires to Chicago, and it was like pulling crocodile teeth to get it. They hollered like knaves at the daily minimum and paying every week. But I left them no doubt it was the only way I could come close to a 15-cent price. And they finally gave in. By the way, that banker at Oberlin is a pretty good friend of yours. He even phoned one of the big bosses at Chicago trying to save you posting the deposit, but the legal department wouldn't stand for it. I thought I might have a lawyer examine the contract, but there was no need of it. <clears throat> the wording was clear and the terms exactly those I proposed. Within half an hour, I turned the $1,000 guarantee check over to Mr. Donovan, and we'd signed two copies of the contract. As I left, Mr. Donovan told me he'd be out to inspect my facilities at the end of July. The first thing I did was to send George Minor an unsigned telegram saying, have corralled the horse of a different color. <laughs> then I mailed the contract to Mr. Fricky so there'd be no chance of losing it and went to the German machinist's shop. 
he'd worked all night on the meat to carriage problem, solved it, and made a wood model that worked perfectly. The platform of the carriage, mounted to slide past the saw blade on parallel rails, was made up of eight rollers studded with rows of sharp brads for holding a large piece of meat firmly in place. A lever and ratchet device turned the rollers in unison, moving the meat forward for a uniform cut of any desired thickness. Although I lacked the ingenuity to invent the contraption, I knew instantly that it would do exactly what I wanted. <clears throat> the old machinist had also made new drawings that showed the workbench lengthened to 10 feet with the band saw and sliding carriage at the end farthest from the window. The saw, powered by an extension of the drive shaft, was positioned so that the cutting blade passed through the bench top 18 inches from the end and midway between front and back. This would permit a cut half the width of the bench and allow space for piling up the slices. The carriage was to be made entirely of metal and the bench top of three inch maple. With no haggling, we agreed on a price of $385 to include a reconditioned Ford motor and an extra saw blade. In exchange for my paying in advance, he promised to have the setup completed and shipped within 15 days. A couple of small packing plants, as well as several meat markets, had gone out of business in Omaha since the war, and most of the equipment from them was still in secondhand fixture stores. My German friend not only knew where every piece of it was, but what the various dealers had, had paid and which ones were the most anxious to sell. He wouldn't go with me, or let me use his name, but told me where to go for everything I needed and what I should pay for it. <clears throat> By closing time, I'd bought enough fixtures, equipment, utensils, hand tools, and plumbing supplies to set up a well-equipped butcher shop and slaughterhouse, and had spent less than $3,000. Among other things, I'd been so fortunate as to get all the fittings from a huge ice box, included, including two 4 by 7 foot insulated doors with their casings, and 40 feet of overhead rail with rolling hooks for handling heavy carcasses, a chain hoist which, with which one man could easily lift a ton, and a 50-gallon copper rending vat. It was late when I got back to Spiro's for supper, and he came running from the kitchen, demanding to know if I'd got the meat contract. When I told him I had, he shouted a few words in Greek over his shoulder, then yammered excitedly at me in English, reminding me that I'd promised to hire his, hire his brother Nick. <clears throat> in the midst of it, Nick, obviously dressed in his Sunday best, came out of the kitchen. He was no more than five feet six tall, but outweighed me by at least 80 pounds. Br br brunette as I was blonde, red-cheeked as compared to my leathery tan, and almost stolid in his movements, while I was inclined to move quickly. <coughs> Besides, he was as calm and bashful as Spyro was excitable and bold. He had no sooner appeared then Spiral began telling me that he was the finest butcher in Omaha. My first inkling that Nick understood English came when Spiral assured me that before being laid off, his brother had cut all the meat for the best hotel trade in town. The boy's face almost became fire red, and he blurted out in heavily accented English, No, Skinner, killing floor. Up to that moment, I'd been hunting for some excuse that would let me out of my thoughtless promise. But after Nick spoke... I didn't want any excuse. I not only liked his straightforwardness, but knew I'd be able to trust him under any circumstances. And it occurred to me that I might be lucky he wasn't an expert butcher. Slaughtering had always been revolting to me, but it would be no problem to a man used to working on the killing floor of a packing horse house. 
Furthermore, skinning would be a big part of my butchering operation, for there was no reason to scalp and scrape hogs when none of the pork would be cured. Then, too, with a bandsaw, I'd have no need for an expert meat cutter. I asked Nick only if he was willing to work for as many hours a day as I did and at any job that needed to be done. He simply nodded, so I shook his hand and told him, It's a deal. $5 a day, starting tomorrow morning. You meet me here at 7 o'clock. Self-conscious because of his poor English, Nick spoke only when necessary. Together with his stolidness, it made him appear a bit stupid, but he was far from it. I soon discovered that he was an excellent and ingenious mechanic, skillful with any hand tool, and although deliberate in his movements, his movements he made every one of them count. As soon as I met him our first morning, we set off for the pawn shops, and within a couple of hours he had bought full sets of carpenters, plumbers, and mason's tools, together with an old whaleback trunk for shipping them. We hired a team and wagon from a livery stable, stable and while Nick collected and packed the, the tools, a spiro took me to his wholesale grocer and baker. From reason, my, my reason for dealing with an Omaha grocery firm and bakery was not only to get wholesale prices, but to keep local butchers from finding out the ingredients in my sausage. I arranged with the baker to ship me, beginning on July 25th, a hundred pounds of bone-dry stale white bread each week instructing him that it was to be packed in four in flour barrels, I'm sorry. It was to be packed in flour barrels and expressed to Nicholas Gusco at McCook. From the grocery firm, I bought a barrel of rough rubbed sage, a hundred pounds of ground black pepper, twenty-five of powdered ginger, and fifteen of cayenne, also having the shipment shipment made in Nick's name. To collect all the materials I bought, crate, and deliver them to the express dock, kept Nick and me going at a, a trot right up till the train time that evening. During the whole day, I doubt that he'd said more than a dozen words except, okay, boss, and I hadn't tried to force him. But it's embarrassing to sit in silence beside a man for any great length of time, and we'd be sitting together for about 15 hours before reaching Oberlin. I'd had plenty of proof all through the day that he could understand almost anything said to him in English if I spoke slowly and was careful to use simple words. Besides, I'd noticed that people were, who were inclined to be self-conscious became more so if questioned, but usually forgot all about it if intently interested in a project or story. I waited until our train was well out of Omaha, then told Nick about the flood, that I thought there should be a good profit if the meat contract, in the meat contract if we could avoid wastage, how I intended to handle it, and of my plans for rebuilding the kitchen and bunkhouse into a little butchering plant. Haltingly, and often pausing to hunt through his memory for English words, he told me of his apprenticeship in Greece, of Spiro's insistence that he come to America, and of his being unable to find work except as a skinner in the packing plants. To relieve him from the strain of talking, I told a story or two of my boyhood on Colorado cattle ranches, and he told a bit about his boyhood in Larissa, his home in Greece. By the time the conductor came through to turn down the lights for the night, Nick and I were good friends, and he was never again self-conscious unless there were strangers with us. We never talked much, but there isn't much need for talking when two men understand and like each other. I didn't sleep well on the train, but did considerable thinking about the hog market cycle and the buried corn on my place. Stocker pigs and heavyweight sows were still a drug on the market, but the price my bacon hogs had brought made me almost certain that George was right. 
It was, of course, too early to be at all sure, but I believe the upward cycle had already begun. When we reached Oberlin, I set Nick to loading our baggage into the Maxwell while I went to see Mr. Fricky. He rose and held out his hand to shake, saying, Congratulations, boy. I didn't think you had a chance of getting that contract. With the railroad paying weekly, how much financing will you need? <clears throat> I could squeeze by on $3,000, I said, but it would take another two to buy as big an inventory of butchering stock as I'd like to carry. We're absolutely reluctant. No. We're somewhat reluctant to make livestock loans at this time unless it's absolutely necessary, he told me. I couldn't say that what I have in mind is absolutely necessary, I said, but think, I think it would be awfully good insurance for the success of the business, and so does George Minor. Sit down, he said, and tell me about it. I told him of the astonishingly high price my hogs had brought, and that I thought it was due not only to the holiday, but to the beginning of an upward cycle in the hog market. Then I explained George Miner's theory of a nine-month cycle and said that the downward trend appeared to have ended when the hog prices fell to their five-year low on June 15th. You say this is George Miner's theory? he asked. <clears throat> yes, sir, I told him, and I believe he's right. I've checked the hog market back for several years, and it has moved up and down in alternate periods of roughly nine months. Mr. Fricky excused himself and left his desk for a few minutes. When he came back, he said, That theory of cycle seems to have some merit. What did you have in mind? I first pointed out that a 15-cent meat contract, I, with a 15-cent meat contract, I could be hardly hurt if obliged to buy hogs from week to week on a sharply rising market. Then I told him of the buried corn on my place. Though most Beaver Valley farmers had lost their corn in the flood but saved their hogs. Next, I mentioned that no mortgaged hogs had been shipped out of Beaver, Town, Beaver Township since the bank closing that most of the valley farmers were overstocked with spring pigs and heavyweights, and that their alfalfa fields were being ruined by excessive hog pasturing. I'd like to buy those surplus hogs and pigs, I told him, and turn them into my field to salvage the buried corn before it rots. By the end of the month, I believe I'd have a good profit in the hogs, and the pigs would supply me with plenty of cheap pork to complete the contract. If our bank were still open and Mr. Kennedy had control of it, there'd be no problem. I have enough money in my trading account to take care of the equities, but with the bank and receivership, I can't have the mortgage balances transferred from the seller's account to mine. The extra 2000 I'd like to borrow would take care of those balances, and I'd pay them off as I butchered or shipped the hogs. Mr. Fricky listened without comment until I'd finished, then asked, Have you talked with the receiver about this? <clears throat> no, sir, I said, but I thought a receiver's job was to liquidate loans, not make them. It is, he said, but what you have in mind would be a form of liquidation. If necessary, the Farmers National will finance you to the extent of $5,000 in the contract venture, as I told you Friday. If you wish, you may use half the amount of, for buying hogs, but I suggest you talk with the receiver before doing anything else. He's at the bank now and phoned me less than half an hour ago. If you'd like, I'll call back and tell him you're on the way. <clears throat> After I thanked Mr. Fricky. He walked to the door with me, saying, If you don't work out something over there, come back to see me. But as I said before, we're somewhat reluctant to make livestock loans at this time. Nick was waiting patiently in the Maxwell when I went back to the depot. So there'd be something for him to eat besides canned salmon and sauerkraut. I stopped at Bivens' store for meat and groceries, but didn't mention having got the contract. When we reached Cedar Bluffs, I didn't stop at the bank, but drove right home, set Nick to unloading the Maxwell, 
slipped on the kitten's, kitten bareback and rode over to the minor place where I talked to George before going to see the receiver. As Kitten slid to a stop in the dooryard, Irene came out to the porch laughing and told me, I wish you could have seen how tickled George was with that telegram. The Oberlin depot agent phoned in at quarter to one Tuesday noontime, right when everybody was in front in the fields for dinner. In from the fields for dinner. I'd bet a cookie that there was somebody listening in on every phone up and down the valley. I never in all my born days seen folks so curious. There's been leastways a dozen of them stopped by to try a little pump priming, and Effie's fit to be tied. But George won't let on what he knows who sent the telegram or has any notion what it means. <clears throat> he went to an auction over to Norcatur this afternoon, and I don't look for him home till chore time. Anything you want to tell him? Just tell him I've come out of the creek again with both pockets full of fish, I said, and that I'll be over to see him after supper. Then I gave Kitten her head, and we streaked for home at a dead run. <laughs> this is such a good relationship between Ralph and George Minor and Effie and everybody. It's just really fun to read about. I love you guys.